0: Just say a few comments by way of introduction. Um, I didn't include a lot of introductory material into the sermon; though it's weaved in, and it will continue to be weaved in it through the series as it becomes more and more relevant. But Galatians is a book written by Paul. It's probably the most quintessentially Pauline book that there is, and there's almost no debate, even from liberal scholars, that this was written by Paul. And there's some debate, and when, when you say debate in scholarship, it's One Bible nerd in his study writing uh, calmly and another Bible nerd, it's not like this raging debate, but there's back and forth about when this book was written, which really depends on to to whom it was written, whether to the North Galatians who were ethnically Galatians or the South Galatians in the province, Roman province of Galatia um, and Paul visited the southern Galatians on his first missionary journey. So if he's writing to them, it's probably written early, and in fact one of the earliest epistles written. Um, And if he's writing to the north Galatians, he's probably writing to um, them much later. And it becomes relevant more later as we will see as, as you correlate Galatians to the book of Acts and the historicity of, of the two events. Um, and, and that becomes more relevant in chapter, later in chapter one and two. So we'll get into that more. Um, but this is, uh, Most importantly, God's word written through his agent of revelation, the Apostle Paul, um, to the Galatians and for us, his people. So, with those few comments out of the way, let's uh, get into Galatians after we pray. Our Father, I ask, I, I plead with you that you not let us be a people who hearing does not hear and seeing does not perceive. We ask that by your word and by your spirit this morning our hearts would be illumined, that you would unstop our ears and open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your word this morning. Above all, may we behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the world's sin. and It is in his name we ask. Amen. Let's rise for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. The the big question in life is at least it should be, how can we be made right with God? It's a question that's actually come up a couple times this week through through life. Um, how can we be made right with God? I think the universal response of, of any sinner is, do good, right? Do good. That's how we get on good terms with God. All of the false religions of the world seek to attain the favor of God by their works. If only they can lay enough bricks, maybe they can build Tower of Babel enough high enough to reach heaven. And we must be ever diligent as Christians, because this condition is built into the hearts of fallen men. And, and so it also, does, it's not just in... in false religions, but it works its way into the church regularly. We see this throughout church history. And the devil has his bag of tricks, and what he uses openly in the world, he camouflages and brings it into the church. So, I think he, he will let us have our gospel of free grace, but let's just add one or two little extras. That That's the threat that Paul's working to neutralize in the book of Galatians. False brethren were coming into the churches, teaching the people Jesus, but but also circumcision, Jesus, and one simple thing. Maybe not so simple for the Gentile men, but one simple thing. Jesus plus anything, however, flips the gospel on its head. Grace is not grace by definition. If you have to do something to attain it, and and peace namely, peace with God, can only be obtained by grace, by God's grace. So, in effect, the answer to the question, how can I be made right with God, when it's flipped on its head like this, is the same as it would be with the religions of the world. It depends on you to make peace with God. And that's no gospel at all. And it's certainly not the gospel that the apostles taught. So what we have this morning is a three-part answer to that question, how can we be made right with God? The first part is that we need to listen to the apostles' teaching. I think it was Dave I was talking with last week that in the book of Acts, after Paul's um, message before the people in Jerusalem at Pentecost, it says that that the people were gathering together for four things. Fellowship, communion, prayer, and the apostles' teaching. It says in Acts 2.42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. These are the things they were devoted to. And the one I want to focus on here is the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. Now, as I'm sure everybody knows, apostles are men who are sent out, They carry a message. They're a herald. A herald is a messenger for a king, perhaps. And these people do not invent their own message. And their authority isn't their own authority, but it's the authority of whoever sent them. So they carry the sender's message and his authority so that to ignore or reject the the, the messenger, the apostle, is to ignore and reject the sender. If, if we ignore the apostles of Jesus Christ, we ignore Jesus himself. <coughs> you cannot have Jesus without the apostles' doctrine. And this is why it was crucial, and we'll see this more as we go through the book, it was crucial to the agenda of the, the false teachers, the false brethren, the, the Judaizers in Galatia, That they undermine Paul's authority, that they discredit his apostleship. If you do away with the apostle, you do away with his gospel as well. So if you want to insert your own gospel, you get rid of that guy, you undermine his authority, you put your own in its place. (coughs) And that's why Paul devotes a major portion of chapters 1 and 2 to defending his apostleship, um, so that the gospel he proclaims can be established as the proper foundation. And then he'll go on to expound that gospel and apply it in chapters 3 through 6. So in the introduction here, he, he simply declares his apostleship. He doesn't really defend it. He just declares it. In, in the letter, he opens up Paul, an apostle. He gets right to the point. Not from men, he says, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul an apostle, he says, he, he establishes his authority in his first breath in this letter. And his language is really dramatic and emphatic. He, he says, not from men, nor through men. And these people who are attacking him may have been pointing out, Paul became an apostle much later than the other ones. He didn't know Jesus. It was after Jesus had already gone. Maybe he was sent by the church in Judea. Maybe even by the other apostles. Apostleship is a divine appointment, and, and it seems that Paul was appointed by men. So you don't need to listen to him. We're on the same footing as Paul. They may have been saying something like this. <coughs> but Paul makes clear he had not come on behalf of any men. He says, Not from men, nor through man. And then he says, But. And in Greek, there are, there are a number of words for But. And and one of them is Allah, which is, we don't have this in English, but it's an extreme form, uh, uh, an emphatic form of the word but, of this contrast. He says, but, through Jesus Christ. His appointment to the office of apostle was a direct commissioning from the king, from Jesus Christ himself, and he adds, and the father who raised him from the dead. The the resurrection was the event, really, that marked the transition between the the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And and more relevantly for our passage, it's also the point at which Jesus was um, shown to be king, the Davidic king. This was the marker of his kingly reign. This is when it began. So Paul openly contradicts any attack on his apostolic authority And he points out, I I have been commissioned by Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, who's been declared king by the power of God. This is where my apostolic authority comes from. (laughs) So this is why he spends so much effort defending his apostleship in this epistle, because when you do away with the authority of the apostles, you do away with their teaching, which means you do away with the gospel. And when you do away with all of that, then something else seeps in to fill the void. The void of authority, and a shiny brand new false gospel takes its place. <laughs> so I hope you can, un- can see, and I'm sure you agree, that, that it's good to make a big deal of the apostolic doctrine. We as people have a need and a longing to hear a word from the Lord, and also people have a knack for looking for the word of the Lord in all the wrong places. (laughs) I have a friend who told me a story. He said he was at a house church, and he asked the question, "What do you think the apostles' doctrine is?" You got crickets. Now, of course, I have nothing against house churches per se, but it seems that the most, most of the current expressions of it are hotbeds for personal interpretation and private revelation. And I, I suppose that can be said of much of the run-of-the-mill evangelical churches today. And here's what's missing is apostolic doctrine. Somehow, teaching and instruction of the apostolic doctrine has been replaced with sharing circles. And the pulpit has become a, a table to, to, and a chair and a, and a relaxed environment so that the preacher can, it feels like he's there to share with you whatever the Lord put on his heart the night before. Now, of course, you can declare anywhere from a table. That's not the point. The point is, the apostolic doctrine needs to be proclaimed. There's a vacuum in the church today created by an absence of apostolic authority. And some fill that void of apostolic authority by going to Rome, who has a sense of apostolic authority in in the apostolic succession of the popes. Others fill it by turning to hypercharismaticism and expressions of Christianity which believe that the office of apostle is still for today and they seek authority in that way. There, there are many places people can turn. But I want you to know that apostolic authority is found in one place. and That's the Bible. The doctrine of the apostles is what has been passed down to us and, and that is what we need to submit to and trust in. And so my job and the job of the other elders is not to be an apostolic witness of new revelation. Praise the Lord. But it's to see that that deposit entrusted to the church is not corrupted. It's to proclaim it. It's to hold the church accountable to it. It's to pass on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. (coughs) There's an interesting fact I didn't know before. This week, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in in Galatians than justification is. It's common fair today to hear people equating obedience to a sensation they seem to have felt with obedience to the Holy Spirit you've heard it before, well, I felt the Lord was telling me to go into missions and to move to the Philippines. And I just felt I had to be obedient to that. I think those statements are well-meaning. They come from a sincere desire to love the Lord, to follow Him. But there's a danger to this approach to seeking the will of God. And it really, I think when it comes down to it, makes us, when we say things like that, claiming to be recipients of direct revelation from God. In essence, we become our own apostle, and it opens the door to our own conscience and our own thought life, filling the vacuum of apostolic authority. And of course, when we drift from biblical authority as our source of divine revelation, we simultaneously drift away from the gospel. Uh, that, that was the, the effort of the Judaizers. They, if they could do away with Paul, they can do with, away with the gospel that he preached. And, and so if the devil today, however subtly and however slowly, can distract us from the apostles' teaching and cause us to look elsewhere to for life-giving words, he can nudge us millimeter by millimeter away from the gospel. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, and I love this title, it's it's long, it's on the front of the book, but it's great. It's called, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Or, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, (laughs) etc. He writes in the book, and this is really insightful, I think. It says, This conventional understanding is the wrong way to think of God's will. In fact, expecting God to reveal some hidden will of direction is an invitation to disappointment and indecision. Trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Waiting on God's will of discretion, uh, direction, is a mess. It is bad for your life, harmful for your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive thinkers who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks for Him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and we need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well-intentioned as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God and then trust that he will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we're going. I want to be clear on this. I I do believe the Holy Spirit does actively work within us day to day. He does lead us providentially. And I think the problem is many Christians are seeking to identify the providential work of the Holy Spirit in the crystal ball when when it's better seen in the rearview mirror. the Holy Spirit also leads us by poking and prodding our consciences. I think we can rightly say that time when you were plagued and bothered to share the gospel with your your neighbor, that's the Holy Spirit. But He doesn't do that divorced from the Word. The reason you were bothered by that is because you read the Great Commission. So no obedience, no true belief, no good fruit is produced without the daily work of the Spirit in our lives. But if we are Hearing new, direct revelation from God, we we need to be very careful because we will find ourselves encroaching on the turf of the apostles. And that's very dangerous. And it will have a direct impact on the gospel. So this is why Paul so adamantly defends his his apostleship. Not, Not because he needs to stroke his own ego, but because the purity of the gospel is at stake in the Galatian churches. (coughs) <coughs> also his apostleship seems to be confirmed by other brothers he says paul an apostle and the brothers who are with me so there's other people who are with him and they seem to be affirming his apostleship in his gospel he's not a lone wolf apostle self-appointed um, man he is attested to by other brothers so if we really want to answer the question how can we be made right with God the place we have to begin and get the the answer for that question is the apostolic teaching apostolic doctrine. We need to begin with the Bible. We need We have to hear what they have testified in the scriptures about Jesus and we need to learn what they mean and we need to ask the spirit for illumination and we need to apply their teaching to our thinking and our practice. We won't find peace knowing God apart from listening to the heralds that King Jesus has given us in the apostles. (coughs) And really the question is, how can we be made right with God? How can we have peace with God is another way to ask the question. And that's what Paul prays here in this text for the Galatian churches, which is our second part of the answer to the question, how can we be made right with God? And and that answer is that we can receive the gift of grace and peace. Receive the gift of grace and peace. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in the the Mormon Church, they have a, a book. I, I guess it's a pseudo scripture. I don't know. They maybe call it scripture. But uh, uh, a, a Second Nephi, um, and in Second Nephi chapter twenty-five, it says this. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ. So far, so good. And to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Pretty good. After all we can do. So, peace with God, our reconciliation is won by running as far as we can get. And Jesus will take up the slack from there. (laughs) (laughs) And men, by our fallen nature, I think we're born with an oxymoronic desire, and that is to earn grace. And I I don't think men are really that dense that we can't understand the definition of words. I think it's just that we're so prideful. We're utterly convinced that we're not that far off surely we can win God's favor with just a little more expenditure of effort. Contrast this with what Paul says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the source. And notice here, there's a subtle but powerful testimony to the deity of Christ here. Jesus, as well as the Father, dispenses gifts that only God can dispense, that is grace and peace. Paul identifies that the only wellspring of grace and peace is divine. It's God. Now, the Judaizers, these people who were coming in and and teaching uh, that people needed to be circumcised to be saved, these Judaizers, uh, much like 2 Nephi, were teaching people to to be made right with God, take these steps. Follow this program, and God will give you saving grace. Be circumcised according to the law of Moses, Jesus will take it from there. <laughs> Paul signals here, even in his greeting, and really this greeting is just, he signals almost everything that's in the whole book as he goes through, but he signals here um, that peace with God only comes by the grace of God. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Peace with God is the fruit of the grace of God produced with none of our help. Grace is often uh, depicted as a a life preserver thrown from a boat. And you're the drowning man in the ocean. and And all you have to do is reach out and grab it and take hold of it and you'll be saved. The better image is that we're dead in the water, become bloated, get eaten by sea creatures, become a skeleton, (laughs) float to the bottom of the ocean, seven feet deep, or seven miles deep, and and Jesus breathes the breath of life into that skeleton. That's grace. And it's utterly of God. Luther comments here. um, Note this most carefully. The words, grace and peace, the words are simple. But during temptation to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Even as Christians who know the peace of God, we can't escape that curious craving of our flesh to earn grace. I don't know your experience, but I catch myself sinning in this way daily is that I find myself thinking thoughts. I do not love God nearly enough. My affections are cold, and I'm so self-centered, and I I find myself suddenly fearing damnation. I'm not good enough for God. Then I'll catch myself... Oh yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I believe in Jesus. He his righteousness is my righteousness. His perfect life is my my life. His sins blotted out my or his cross blotted out my sins. And it, even my cold affections and my perpetual pride and self centeredness have been covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm justified by faith faith and I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have to remember. Peace with God is exclusively a product of grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing we can do can win it. Likewise, nothing that we can do can cancel it. It's grace. Now we find the substance of that grace at the cross, of course, which leads us to our final answer of the question, how can we be made right with God? And that is, enjoy the gospel. Enjoy the gospel. Uh, again, Martin Luther seemed to live in, in kind of this constant battle, that I, the one I just described, only on a much grander scale. He's Martin Luther. Um, and he, he comments here that when the devil accuses him of being a sinner, unworthy of the grace of God, that really gives him confidence because who did Jesus die for? Good people or sinful people? He says, I have often proven by experience, and I continue to find out every day how hard it is to believe, especially during conflicts of conscience, that Christ was given not for the holy, righteous, worthy, and those who were his friends, but for wicked sinners, for the unworthy, and for his enemies who deserve God's wrath and everlasting death. Grace is a gift, and the struggle is learning to rest in that gift. Paul describes the substance of that grace, and we'll just read verses 3 and 4 again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, bore our griefs and became the substitutionary sacrifice, suffering the wrath of God in our place. He says, he gave himself for our sins, on on behalf of our sins. Not not he delivered himself as payment for service was rendered. He gave himself for our sins. When I'm overwhelmed with that realization, I don't measure up to God's perfect and lovely standard. The only place that I can turn is the cross. Jesus gave himself on behalf of my sins. He gave himself on behalf of my loving God half-heartedly this morning. He gave himself for my self-centeredness. And that's what I have to believe and continually be reminded of day by day and moment by moment. And now that doesn't mean, of course, that we may continue to live in those sins without repentance. He, he says that in his death he delivered us from those sins. Paul says here that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. I believe that the present evil age is this age of worldliness and sin. He, he's delivered us from it. And as we continue to find over and over again in Scripture, this world is not our home. We're, we're just passing through. So when we were redeemed, we were delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son. You can flip over real quick to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 4-9 through 9 describes this event. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be uh, once more? So, he's saying we're free. We're delivered from that present age. We've been removed from our, our shackles and we've been made sons and daughters of God free from that old uh, sin. And all of this, he says in verses 4 and 5 of uh, chapter 1, are according to the will of God and for His glory. So God does not bestow grace and peace out of compulsion, or it would not be grace. The very nature of grace, by definition, requires that it be given freely of the will of God. His purpose in giving us grace through Jesus was, he says, to glorify himself. It's according to his good pleasure that he gives grace. So because of our propensity to esteem ourselves more highly than we ought, we we like to make the gospel about us. And the gospel is about God. We like to say, invite Jesus into your heart, because God longs to have a relationship with you, if only you'll accept him. Or maybe from a more reformed error, keep yourself in the covenant by way of your obedience. Whatever manifestation it is, we all do it. We all make the gospel about ourselves. And we know intellectually that we're we're no better than the worst of the vilest of sinners. But in truth, we think that we're selected for some superior quality that God saw in us. I'll speak for myself. I do. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, it's so obvious. <laughs> Back on track here. The, the ultimate aim of the gospel, viewed from God's perspective, is not about men, but it's about God. Ephesians 1 says in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. So I, I want to be pleasing to God. I want to be in communion with God. I want to be at peace with him. I want to be made right with him. And I want to glorify him. And the best way to glorify God is to enjoy his grace to believe the gospel and be thankful. Any effort, anything I try to add to the gospel will only diminish it. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his introduction to the death of death and the death of Christ, uh, he contrasts the gospel that men used to preach uh, with the modern gospel of decisionism, essentially. He says this. This is I have one quote tacked up on my office wall, and this is it. The preaching of the news of the gospel is often described as the task of bringing men to Christ, as if only men move while Christ stands still. But the task of preaching the old gospel could more properly be described as bringing Christ to men. For those who preach it know, as they do their work of setting Christ before men's eyes, the mighty Savior whom they proclaim is busy doing His work through their words, visiting sinners with salvation, awakening them to faith, drawing them in mercy to Himself. I encourage you this morning, enjoy the gospel of Christ's apostles, the true gospel of free, unmerited gifts of grace and peace through Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins according to the will of God the Father and for His eternal glory. Amen.